Numbers chapter 15 is where we'll pick up tonight. And before, before we start reading chapter 15, um, it's worthwhile to remember the score. I think one of the challenges of studying the book of Numbers um, is similar to when you're watching a suspenseful movie or a horror story and you know what's going to happen next. And you will with all your might, it would go differently. But you've seen enough of the story to know what's about to happen. And so all you can do is think, don't open that door. Are you kidding me? Why are you out there by yourself? Uh, You know, start running already, these types of things. Um, Numbers has that same flavor to it where even though there's not really another story like the story the Bible tells, Numbers lays it on so thickly, we know how it's going to go over and over again. In fact, it was summarized really well in God's own words last week when he said, you've tested me these ten times, over and over again. And so where we're at as we pick up chapter 15, um, it's, I've been comparing the book to a road trip, so we might as well stick with that illustration, like it or not. Um, effectively, God is driving the bus, and Israel has been complaining to the degree. It's just been constantly, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And they finally get to the destination, and they go, we want to go home. And that's kind of, in a major way, a last straw. They refuse to enter into the land that God has promised. Their unbelief overflows to the degree um, that they stand against God and accuse him of dragging him through this whole trip just to take their life. And so he says, that's it. All of you over the age of 20, in other words, all of you who are adults who have stood against me, you will not enter into the land, but I have a plan and it will not be thwarted by your unfaithfulness. So your children, your children will. And so we find ourselves and will for the next few weeks um, in this awkward period of time between God's plan and God's plan. The, the period that makes up these 40 years uh, we find here in the book of Numbers, you can't really view as anything but parenthetical. The next step in God's plan is enter into the land, and it won't be until the end of Deuteronomy that they finally do that, and they're literally during this time just waiting for the older generation to die out. Um, You'll notice as we read tonight and as we read in weeks weeks to come, the timeline kind of disappears. We're not told when these events happen, just somewhere over the duration of the 40-year period. It's relatively irrelevant, and to some degree, it's more of the same. Now, with that being said, chapter 14 closes with Israel on the border of the land no longer allowed to go in, given this death sentence, and chapter 15 opens up with more rules, with more law code. If you haven't been studying the book with us, it's actually a little bit jarring just to read it through because we've been in the midst of a narrative and then it's like, oh yeah, there's some rules I want to tell you about. It seems strange. But as we saw in Exodus, in Leviticus, in Numbers, as well as in Deuteronomy's, uh, Deuteronomy, the law is interwoven with the narrative. Uh, And so this pattern of swinging back and forth between narrative passage and legislative passage is there. One of the reasons, I think, is because it makes the law readable. Because you're in the midst of the narrative. And so, remember, these stories, 
were to be continuously shared. The history of Israel was to be constantly repeated. The scriptures were to be read aloud and taught to their children and tied on their hands and um, you know, plastered on their, uh, the hearth of their homes, all of these things. And so as they tell the stories, the, the legislative parts are interwoven with the story, um, which make it tolerable. But it also makes for a really profound effect. Most often, the, the law isn't just sprinkled like some sort of seasoning throughout the narrative. It's intricately and delicately placed in just the right place. And this is one of those places where that's especially clear. Chapter 14, Israel refuses to enter into the land. God lays out a sentence and says, you shall not enter the land. Now with that in mind, read with me the beginning of chapter 15. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say, when you come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving you. Do you hear how profound that is in the context of them losing the land? You see, the law that lays out here Although it is a requirement, although it is commandments, it also reiterates the inherent promise that I am going to take all of you under the age of 20 into the land. So let's talk about life when you get there because you will get there. Okay? This whole chapter here in all of the laws it lays out is a tremendous expression of God's grace that he is still taking them despite uh, their behavior and it's a tremendous expression of God's faithfulness. The plan hasn't changed even though the recipients have. And so he says, when you come into the land you are to have it, which I am giving you, and you offer the Lord from the herd or from the flock or a food offering or a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or a freewill offering at your appointed feast or to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord. In other words, whenever you come and you make a freewill offering, so maybe it's one of the five Levitical sacrifices that we've talked about, uh, notwithstanding or not including the guilt sacrifice or the trespass sacrifice, but the other three, the freewill offering, the burnt offering, uh, the fellowship offering, any of those, any of the ones that are appointed for the feast. In other words, he says, anytime you bring a sacrifice, and that's where we get the legislation Uh, And so it says in verse 4, Then he who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hen of oil, and you shall offer it with the burnt offering, or for a sacrifice a quarter of hen of wine for the drink offering for each lamb. Now, why do we get this here and not back in the book of Leviticus? The primary reason is because this legislation is being upgraded to land inhabitants. While they're traveling around in the wilderness, they are offering the sacrifices, but they're not growing grain. So there's no accompanying grain offering. They don't have a vineyard because they're they're en route, they're traveling. So there's no wine offering that goes alongside of it. And so God chooses here to speak to Moses and, and start to look forward because he's now made a promise that these children are going to go into the land. And what we see effectively is that their sacrifices weren't to be without the accompanying grain and drink offering. If you were with us in Leviticus, we talked about how kind of the pinnacle of the sacrificial system for the everyday Israelite was the fellowship offering. 
And it was effectively a meal that you had with God. And so there was a portion on the altar for God, but a portion was also given to the offerer to enjoy with his family and friends. Here we see that that would be accompanied with a grain offering, part of which would be burned on the altar, as well as, uh, as eaten by the offerer and the priests doing the offering, and a wine offering that would be partially poured out at the base of the altar and then drank as part of the offering. And so the idea of this is festal in nature. It's a feast. It's one of celebration and enjoyment. Um, and these things are not to be lacking. I think one of the significance of this concept is that the sacrificial system the free will offerings. We're not talking about sin and guilt. Those were sober and somber affairs, right? But these ones were to be celebratory, not merely obligatory, not merely going through the motions. They were to be, um, be affairs that were filled with celebration and joy. And so it has the natural marks of celebration in the Jewish mind, cakes and oil and wine, okay? And so the different descriptions of the portion that's given to God are given here and in verse 10, you shall offer for the drink offering a half a hin of wine as a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Verse 11, thus it shall be done for each bull or ram, for each lamb or young goat. As many as you offer, so shall you do with each month uh, each one as many as there are. Every native Israelite shall do these things in this way, in offering a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger is sojourning with you or anyone living permanently among you and he wishes to offer a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, he shall do as you do. And so after the law is laid out here, it says, now this applies to every Israelite, but also any resident alien, anyone who's taken up permanent residency in the land of Israel who wants to worship God, the door is open to them. And to some degree, this is really surprising because think and reflect with me on how much of the law has been spent on separation and distinction and Israel maintaining their differences. Over and over again, take Leviticus 18, it said, you will not do like the people who dwell in the land now. You will not be like the Egyptians from which you came, lest I bring upon you the things I brought upon them. They are to dress differently. They are to eat differently. Their worship is to be different. Their temple is laid out different. But if a foreigner wants to enter in and worship the God of Israel, the door is wide open. They are to be open and accessible. This is part of the reason why in the New Testament, when Jesus comes into the temple and he sees what the, uh, the temple has become, he drives out the money changers who are there to change the money of Rome to the money of the temple. He drives out the animal dealers who, are, who have already pre-qualified acceptable sacrifices because it's become a marketplace and it's happening in the court in the days of Jesus, in the court of the Gentiles, the only place where non-Jews can come to the tabernacle or to the temple. They can't go in any deeper. And it's this crazy, loud marketplace. What does Jesus say? He drives them out and he says, my house, says the Lord, it's to be a house of prayer and you have made it a den of robbers. We don't always think about this, but effectively what what Jesus is addressing there is significant for racial reasons. 
he's recognizing the hindrance that the Jews have created for non-Jewish people to worship the God of Israel. But we see all the way back, Jesus isn't a revolutionary in that sense. He's getting back to the way it was supposed to be. God's people, Israel, were to be a light among the nations. And although you can make a difference between the centrifugal and the centripetal nature of Israel's mission and ours, you remember studying that in science? One of them spins inside and attracts. The other spins outwards and pushes out, okay? Israel was to be a place where the nations could come. And the church is called to go out into the nations. But the open door policy and the invitation stood even in the days of Israel. And so they were to welcome. Now, this is especially significant here, and you may not know why. Of the 12 spies who go and view the land of Israel, only two come back open and ready and willing to believe God's promises, calling for the people to say, yes, the land is beautiful, there are enemies, but God is on our side, their protection is removed, we can take this. One of them is Joshua. Joshua has come up many times in the story, and he will become a primary character as he steps into the, uh, into the shoes of Moses and takes over, leading Israel into the promised land. But the other one is Caleb. Now, you may not have noticed this, but Caleb is a Kenizzite. That is not a tribe of Israel. He's a foreigner. Most likely, most likely, uh, he has Jewish family members, but there's been an intermarrying while they were in Egypt, and so he has a shared parentage. But we don't know. We just know that he's referred to as Caleb the Kenizzite. And so significantly here, this is a good place to go. Let's talk about the appropriateness of this. Now, we've seen even in last week, and we will see again, in this mixed multitude that is traveling with Israel, not all of them are a good influence. But Caleb clearly is. And once again, as we see here, that is according to the plan. One of the things we have to understand about God is that he is desirous of all comers. The gospel, the message that God has given us to carry in the church is universal in its appeal. It's universal in its application. The invitation is written to all of humanity. The only distinction Jesus makes when he limits the guest list, he says, I have come for sinners. That's the only requirement. But it is worth mentioning in balance with that, that when they come, they have to come rightly. That this universality is not a throwing way of the narrowness of knowing the true and living God. It's not a anything goes. It's not belief doesn't matter. It's not live your own life and God is cool with it. All of the foreigners are welcome to come, but notice what it says again in verse 14. If any stranger is sojourning with you or anyone is living permanently among you and he wishes to offer a food offering as a pleasing aroma to the Lord, he shall do as you do, Israel. And so the emphasis here is that they come in the same way. They're allowed, as we've read in weeks past, to keep the festivals but they have to keep them in the same way, recognizing the same kosher laws, obeying the same basic principles. And God makes a similar requirement. That's why Jesus can say at one time, come all who are hungry, 
who are thirsty and drink. And at the same time say, be careful because broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to life. The gospel is universal and particular. It's exclusive and inclusive. It's exclusive because Jesus maintains he is the only way to know the living and true God. And it's inclusive because that way of salvation is open to all who would take it. We see the same thing for Israel here. Now it moves on and it says here in verse 15, For the assembly there shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a statute forever throughout your generations. You and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. Do you hear the repetition of that? It says the same thing. It just moves the word order around over and over again. What is it trying to drill into the Israelites' head? Okay. There is a distinction between you and Gentiles. You are Jewish, they are not. You are my chosen people, they are not. But that distinction does not elevate you above them. I was reading G.K. Chesterton in a biography on Charles Dickens today, and he was talking about how democracy is the only thing that can produce great men. That before we can have greatness, we must have equality. I've been chewing on that idea all night. What he's recognizing here is that uh, Israel's amazing standing with God is God-given, not man-earned. And so he's reiterating here that the distinction isn't one that they should maintain exclusively, that you're outside the boundaries. And so listen to it with that in mind again. You and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. One law and one rule will be for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. It's it's equalization. It's balancing all men. And what Chesterton says that I thought was so powerful is he says that's not by reducing all men, but raising them up. Okay, they all have the same dignity. It's not erasing the differences, but balancing them uh, because all of us, going back to Genesis chapter 2, are created in the image of God. Now it continues here, verse 17, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I bring you, And when you eat of the bread of the land, you should present a contribution to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall present a loaf as a contribution, like a contribution from the threshing floor, so shall you present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. It compares this little offering here to the offering of first fruits, okay? For every harvest Israel had, they were to take the first day's earnings, if you will, when they went out into the field and bring it to the tabernacle and present it to God as a recognition that all of the harvest came from him as as an expression of gratitude. Now we see when they cook that same grain, they're also to take a portion. Every single batch that they grind with mortar and pestle, every batch of flour they make and then cook into bread, one loaf was to be for God. One of the things that I love about this is it brings the worship of the tabernacle right into the kitchen of every Israeli household, of every Jewish family now when they cook. And even in the diaspora, even when the Jews were scattered after 70 AD and went out into the land and there was no altar to offer bread, it was still practice when they made a loaf of bread to take a piece of it and throw it into the fire, knowing that that is not the altar but symbolic of the principle 
that God is a good giver and recognizing every loaf of bread, right? What are we going to read when we get, uh, we get to the prayer of Jesus in the New Testament? Give us this day our daily bread, each and every loaf recognizing that it comes from God's hand. And so they're told when you come into the land and when you have bread, do this. And then it continues on and it deals here with unintentional sins, verse 22. But if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by Moses from the day that the Lord gave the commandment and onward throughout your generations, then if it was done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bowl from a herd of a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so what's, what's under, what it's speaking of here is an unintentional sin. Now, at one place here in the ESV, it uses the idea of unknowing. The idea here is that they didn't, it's is not that they didn't know it was wrong. It's that they weren't thinking when they did it, okay? It was an impulsive action, okay? We make a difference between somebody who is murdered, uh, you know, with kind of an overflow of emotion, it just sort of happened, and a premeditated murder, right? We draw a line of distinction between those two. In the same way, here the distinction is between what's labeled unintentional sin and high-handed sins, okay? Sins that are deliberately rebellious and ones that are stumbled into uh, where because of your passions or lack of thinking or forgetting what's going uh, on or not paying attention, you either do what you're not supposed to do or neglect to do what you were called to do. And so it deals here first at the congregational level, and it says that when you, you know, kind of come to knowledge and go, oh, wow, that was not something we should have done. This is the sacrifice you're to bring for the whole congregation. And we see here it's a bull from the herd for a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, with the grain offering and drink offering according to the rule, and one male goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they shall be forgiven because it was a mistake and they have brought their offering, a food offering to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their mistake. And all the congregation of the people of Israel shall be forgiven, and the stranger who sojourns among them, because the whole population was involved in the mistake. So that's at the congregational level for the whole community. Now, what if it's an individual sin? Verse 27, if one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering. And so it was a bull and a goat for a sin offering for the whole congregation. Here it's just a goat and it can be a female one. The standard is lower. Verse 28, the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. You have one law for him who does anything unintentionally for him who's a native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Now that's an important thing to add here, but it's worth drilling down to what the distinction between these two sins is. The idea here is that sin with a high hand is deliberate and uh, unrepentant, okay? And so the rabbis had a saying that a high-handed sin becomes an unintentional sin when there's repentance. In fact, we see that play out many times in the narrative of Israel's history. What we just saw in Numbers was high-handed, okay? Their refusing to enter into the land is not 
is not unintentional. It's stubborn. It's feet dragging. Um, and even afterwards, they don't at first repent. In, fa- in fact, they try and just avoid the consequences by feigning obedience as another act of unbelief at the end of chapter 14. And so a high-handed sin is one you do, if you will, with your fist raised to the Lord. And what it recognizes here is that there's no forgiveness without repentance. That there's nothing magical about a sacrifice. God has made a way of forgiveness, and without the remission of blood, it says in Leviticus, there is no forgiveness for sin, but there is also no forgiveness for sin that is held on to tightly, that is stubbornly, um, stubbornly maintained. And so that distinction is made here. And so verse 31, it says, why? Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off, his iniquity shall be on him. Okay, his guilt, his punishment shall be on him. Um, even if he brings a sacrifice, it won't change anything unless there's a change of heart. Okay. Verse 32. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation, and they put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. Okay, and so we were told in the book of Exodus uh, that they were to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, to do no work on the Sabbath, and they find a man gathering sticks. Now, it, one of the ways that it's particularly expressed in Exodus is that they are to light no fires on the Sabbath. And so when we look at this, we have to ask, why is it that they don't know what to do next? You go back and you read the law, it seems very clear. Why did they put this man in a holding tank? And why does Moses seek the Lord? There's really two options. One is because although it's illegal to light a fire on the Sabbath, gathering sticks may be intent to light, but he hasn't actually lit it yet. And so is this the same thing or not? The other possibility is, although it does lay out a sentence, um, uh, death, in the book of Exodus, it doesn't lay out the form of execution, which varies in other places, okay? And so Moses goes before the Lord while they put him in custody, and God answers verse 35, the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death, all the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, as the Lord commanded Moses. And so this example, and there's a few of these throughout the book of Exodus and Numbers, is given to show us how they learned to carry out um, the law. And obviously here, the commitment of the Sabbath is a high one that is to be highly maintained. And we don't really have time to, uh, to talk about why this day and the lack of work is so significant. But the recognition is that the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant. It has to do with who God is and who Israel is to God. And so you cannot neglect it without directly expressing something about God, about God as provider, about God as, uh, as rule maker and lawgiver, as keeper of the covenant. Um, and so the man is dealt with very seriously. And then the last thing that's in this legislative section has to do with clothing, verse 37. 
The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corner of their garment throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. Okay. And so all of their garments are to have these tassels. We'll see what they're for in a second. But I want you to notice that one of the strands of the tassel, just one, that's what it means by a cord of blue, uh, is to be blue. Or literally, it's more of a purpley violet. Okay. Now, here's why that's significant. Because we're familiar with how they made this color in the ancient world, in the area around the Mediterranean. They did it by killing a particular type of snail. Okay and using that for dye. But here's the profound thing about this particular snail. Uh, A archaeologist a while ago did some math, because this is still used in some places of the world in dye production, and he discovered to get even 1.4 grams of this dye, you have to kill 12,000 snails. Okay, so you get it in incredibly small amounts. In fact, we have records from the first century of, uh, I'm not going to be able to remember the town, but a particular town that was known for selling dyed clothing. The purple, this color dyed clothing, sold for 400 times the cost of other dyes. Okay, it's incredibly rare. So what is it doing here on every Israelite's guard, uh, uh, garment? You know, what we're talking about is like the spice saffron, right? Incredibly expensive and super rare. Why does it need to be on every single Israelite's garment? Okay, the reason is because this same color is woven pretty heavily, side note, into both the tabernacle and the priesthood. I mentioned what Chesterton said about equalizing all men. This is a reminder, in some sense, that all of Israel are priests. They're not officially priests. Their firstborn were claimed by God, and God uh, appoints the Levites to stand in the place of them. But there's a sense where Israel is a kingdom of priests, and so they have this reminder on every piece of clothing of that connection between the tabernacle, God's dwelling place, and the priesthood, God's servants. And so at great expense, in very small amounts, they have this visible reminder. And so it says in verse 39, and it should be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. And so it recognizes here that uh, Israel could use a constant reminder of the covenant. Okay. Now, actually, they've had many so far. Obviously, the tabernacle is one. Uh, the pillar of smoke and fire is another. Uh, the holidays that they keep, there's all of these constant reminders, but now they have one on them at all times. And it's specifically said here uh, so that you have this reminder so that you don't go your own way. So you don't whore after your own desires. And the word there is just as extreme as it sounds. It's a term of prostitution. It recognizes um, that the behavior of Israelites, like all of us, is prone to worship other things than the living God. And so they have this visible reminder, this call, every day as they get dressed and every time they look down at their clothing to holiness. And it finishes here in verse 41. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. And I am the Lord your God. And so notice the purpose statement there. Why did he bring them out of Egypt? So that they would belong to him. So the tassels stand as a reminder of that. And so this is laid out 
And we're not told where we are in the timeline. That legislation just kind of exists in the document, right? The Lord said to Moses, we don't know if it was Tuesday or Wednesday, we don't know if it was days after they didn't enter the land or years. In the same way, we get to the next event in chapter 16. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. Okay? And so this group gathers, and it's made up of two primary instigators, some leaders from the family of Levi and some leaders from the family of Reuben. Now, if you were to go back earlier in the book of Numbers, you would find out in the camp layout, Levi and Reuben are side by side. Okay, so these are neighbors on the south side of the tabernacle who come together specifically led by Korah, by Dathan, and Abiram. Okay, and so they gather up 250 chiefs, family heads, and they bring them to Moses. Verse 3, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you've gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves among the assembly or above the assembly of the Lord? Now, one of the things that may have prompted this is what we just saw with the tassels, right? Now they're dressed to the nines as well. They've got the tassels to prove it. We're holy to the Lord too. Didn't we just talk about the fact that Israel was to be a kingdom of priests? So who is Aaron to be priest over us? That's the complaint they bring. Now, notice verse 4, when Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, in the morning the Lord will show you who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring, do, uh, bring near to him. And so they bring this criticism that, that Moses and specifically Aaron are ruling inappropriately over the congregation, that they're acting like they're uniquely holy when all of Israel is holy. Uh, and so, so God says, or excuse me, Moses says, okay, tomorrow God will make a distinction. Tomorrow God will show who is his and who is holy. And so he says, verse 6, do this, take censers, Korah, and all the company, put fire in them and incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chose shall be the holy one. Now, you may remember that carrying incense before the Lord was something that only the priests could do, only the family of Aaron. Korah here is a Levite. In fact, the family that he's from is the family that is responsible for carrying the holiest artifacts in the tabernacle. Okay? And so when they pack up, they go in after the priests have wrapped all of the things, including the tabernacle. It's this family that carries the ark and the lampstand and all the major furniture of the tabernacle. Okay? No small role. And so they come, and what, what, uh, what Moses says is, okay, you want to be the priest? Then be the priest. Bring censers. Offer incense, but I want you to notice that it's not right now. It's tomorrow. Why? Why tomorrow? I think the most likely reason, the most likely reason, 
is to give them an opportunity to think this through. Okay. What's really interesting, as we'll see in the story, is they're going to have incense and it is not accepted. Aaron, the high priest, the one God appointed, he's going to have incense and it's accepted. This should remind us of an earlier story, one that Aaron himself is very familiar with, when his two sons come and offer what the commentator just labels strange fire before the Lord. In fact, we'll notice that Moses specifically reminds Aaron, Aaron, you get your hot coals from the altar. We don't know where the sons of Korah get it from, but it's not the altar. Okay? They are operating beyond their pay grade. And so Moses here says, come tomorrow, and he gives them time to think this through, to process. He gives them an opportunity to turn around. But, verse 7 he says, put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses will be the Holy One. And then he warns them, you've gone too far. You've gone too far, sons of Levi. Verse 8, Moses said to Korah, hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small of a thing that God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation and minister to them? He says, are you really going to Undervalue, undervalue the part that God's given you to play? Are you really going to complain that God hasn't given you enough when he's given you the most second significant part to play in the tabernacle, the carrying of the holy things? Not only that, he says in verse 10, but he's brought you near to him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? He rightly recognizes that this is a greedy move. It's not that they don't have significance. It's not that they don't have value. It's not that they don't have a role to play. They just don't have what's, in their opinion, the best role, the most significant, the most valuable. They have this. They want more. Verse 11, Therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? Once again, we see Moses operating with a tremendous amount of godly leadership. And so, simultaneously, he warns them of what's about to happen. He speaks the truth to them. He gives them opportunity to repent. But he also points out that this is not against Aaron. That this is not against Moses. That their stand is serious because it's a stand against the God who gave them the roles. Okay? Aaron is not high priest because he was the first one to raise his hand. He's not high priest because he's Moses' brother, so he gets the inside job. He's high priest because God appointed him high priest. That's where this whole thing is going sideways. Listen to the words of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5. As we talked about in the book of Leviticus, the book of Hebrews takes the entire Old Testament realm the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the tabernacle, and shows how it all pointed to and was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so here in chapter 5, it's talking about the requirement for priests. And this is what it says in chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. 
He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins as he does uh, for those of the people. And this is important to verse 4. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. You see, the author of Hebrews rightly recognizes here that God has chosen Aaron and that this is not up to debate. Moses' leadership, Aaron's leadership, the Korites, uh, this tribe themselves, and all of the Levites were given these roles by God. And so that makes this stand, not just a stand against the leadership of Moses and Aaron, but a stand against God himself. And so uh, apparently he sends them home to think these things over. But we still have Dathan and Abiram to deal with. One of the things that's interesting about this chapter that's worth pondering is how these two stories are interwoven. We don't get the idea here that Dathan and Abiram, who were Reubenites, are calling out Aaron's leadership and want to be priests also. It's more likely that they're calling out Moses' leadership and want, want that to go on. And you'll see it jumps back and forth between these two stories along the way. They're interwoven because they have the same problem involved, okay, which is the one that we just talked about. And so Moses calls them Dathan and Abiram. He's talked to the Korites. Now he wants to talk to the other leaders, the sons of Elab, and they said, we will not come up. Why would we listen to you? You're no longer an authority over us. That's what we're trying to tell you. This is a takeover. And so verse 13, is it a small thing? This is their criticism. A small thing that you, Moses, have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey? Whoa. Where did they learn that phrase? That's the phrase that God uses as the promised land. And here they say, Moses, you know what your problem is? You took us away from Egypt, the land flowing with milk and honey. Okay? It's not just misguided. It's a pretty severe accusation. Okay? This is full-on uh, what the Brits used to call cant. It's full-on rhetoric. Okay? Listen to what they say next. Okay. So they say, uh, they continue on, they brought us up as a land flowing from milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you also must make yourself a prince over us. Moreover, you've not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Okay, pause again. Is it Moses who couldn't bring them into the promised land? No, they refused. And even when Moses tried to convince them otherwise, they refused. But now it's Moses' fault. He's the one who brought him out into the wilderness and couldn't even do what he said he was going to do, which is take us into the promised land. He continues here. He says, will you put out, the end of verse 14 here, the eyes of these men? This is a, an idiom that probably means to deceive, right? Are you going to blind us too? Are you going to take advantage of us too? So the list of accusations is pretty strong here. Moses, you appointed yourself as an authority. You've led us out here incapable of giving us the promise. You ruined our lives by leading us out of Egypt. And on top of that, you're doing this for your own non-altruistic motives that are still hidden. And so you're pulling the wool over us. Verse 15, Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, do not respect their offering. 
I've not taken one donkey from them and have not harmed one of them. He's angry here. He recognizes, he says, those charges are unjust. But did you notice who he says it to? He doesn't respond to them. Remember, they didn't come to him, but he doesn't send the messenger back and say, you tell them, and then he just tells them what he really thinks of them. He goes before the Lord. As we talked about last week here, he looks to God for his vindication. And it's worth recognizing that oftentimes we have a hard time sanctifying anger. I don't mean in practice, I mean in concept. We generally think of anger as inherently sinful. It's not necessarily the case. Let me just remind you that the God who is love is simultaneously also a God who is angry. Angry regularly and consistently. In fact, when you recognize the weight of what's going on in the world and injustice, God is angry angry all the time. And yet, does that make him wicked or evil? No. In fact, Paul calls us as Christians in Ephesians chapter 4 to be angry and do not sin, implying what? That it's possible to be angry and not sinful. Moses rightly uh, directs his anger, not in lashing out in vengeance, whether verbal or otherwise. He doesn't take advantage of his authority. In fact, it almost looks like to me like he recuses himself from this particular case. Does he have the authority to handle this on his own? I think you could make a pretty good case that he would be fully within his own rights to handle this and deal with the rebellion himself. But instead, he defers to God. Angrily, and rightly angrily, because he's been wrongly accused. His, you know, this is, um, this is slander, this is libel. But he directs that anger to God and expects God to bring justice. And so, verse 16, Moses said to Korah, be present you and all your company before the Lord and they and Aaron tomorrow and let every one of you take his censer and put incense on it and every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers, you also and Aaron each his censer. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Notice once again, what we always see in these passages where people stand against the leaders of Israel is that God, in every step, confirms the leadership of Israel. And so God addresses who here? Moses and Aaron. He makes a distinction. Verse 21, he says, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. Guys, you're standing a little close. Could you step back, please? Verse 22, and they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, so one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation. Notice two things here. First, Moses and Aaron are not beyond interceding, even though they're the ones under attack. They don't fly off the handle and go, you know what, only you guys are speaking, but all of you think it, you're all gone. They go, no, no, and I love this phrase here. He refers to God as what? God of the spirits of all flesh. The idea here is that God gave each and every individual life, and their last breath is already in his hands. He can discern between the instigators and the sinful and the innocent. 
It's very similar to when Abraham, when God tells him, I'm going to go down, I've heard things are going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm going to destroy it. And he says, but what if you find 50 righteous there? Won't the God who's just do rightly? Moses is interceding in the same way, and he's saying, God, be just. Discern between the spirits. Know what's right and wrong. Make the distinction, playing the part that, as we will see throughout the Old Testament, is truly the heart of God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And so he broadens out and he says, okay, everybody needs to take a step back, not just Moses and Aaron. Now, I wish, I wish we could see what this day was like. Because remember that this whole communication is happening while 250 unqualified and unchosen leaders are standing there with censers full of incense. And now all of the camps start to uproot, pack up, and step away from their entire family, okay? This is quite the ordeal as they just stand there and watch what's going on. It's a relatively tense situation. And so they do that, and remember, uh, remember that we've been jumping back and forth. So we have the Korites at the temple, 250 censors, and then verse 25, Moses rose and went to Datham and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it's not been of my own accord. Okay. What does he want here? He wants them to understand that he didn't choose this role, that he didn't take this role for himself, that this has been God's plan. And he says, this is how you'll know, verse 29, if these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. If these men die of natural causes, then I am not his leader. He has not appointed me, verse 30. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Now, I want you to notice how specific his statement is here. It's in steps, right? So the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up, and they go down to Sheol, then you will know, okay? And so, verse 31, as soon as he finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their household and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And so God miraculously just opens the earth some sort of an earthquake, a crevasse is formed, they all fall into it, and then it closes right back up. Okay. But it follows the exact pronouncement of Moses. So, verse 34, And all of Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. 
Okay, so this is what happens with Datham and Abiram and their families. But remember, we left the Korites back at the tabernacle. They're not near these tents. They're back at the front with their censers. And so verse 35, fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering incense. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, to take up the censers out of the blaze and scatter the fire far and wide, because they have become holy. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar, for they offered them before the Lord, and they became holy. Thus they shall be assigned to the people of Israel. And so these 250 censers are gathered up, hammered down, and plated around the altar of sacrifice, so that any time an Israelite comes and sees the altar, they remember this occasion of rebellion. Uh, And so in verse 40, to be a reminder of the people of Israel so that no outsider who's not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his company, as the Lord had said to him through Moses. You would expect the story to end there. But notice verse 41, but on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. They're still not getting the message of how this works. In verse 42, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned towards the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared, and Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. Okay, and so effectively, they notice that God is summoning them to the tabernacle as the cloud descends, and so they go, verse 44, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away from the midst of this congregation that I might consume them in a moment, and they fell on their faces, and Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put fire on it off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. And so notice here, even though they're rebelling against Aaron and Moses, they need Aaron and Moses. It's Moses who leads to the end of this plague. It's Aaron who intercedes for these people in their sins. These are the roles that they were appointed to play. And so we see them playing out here, and notice what happens, verse 47. So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly, and behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people, and he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. I love how well written that sentence is. He stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Can't you just picture what's going on here? There's some mysterious happening that people are dropping dead from and he gets ahead of this unforeseen wave of death and he stands and he waves the incense and there is the line where the death stops. Okay? He stands in the gap. He intercedes. Now, God is gracious and he's patient and he's just And he can forgive people without the intercession of Aaron, but he has appointed Aaron as intercessor. It's his role. He's the one who once a year goes into the holy place and offers blood for the forgiveness of all the sins of Israel. And there's a place in Ezekiel that I have a hard time getting out of my head because here the judgment stops because Aaron is there. He stands between the dead and the living. 
And there's an occasion in the book of Ezekiel, which is much later in Israel's history. Now judgment is about to come that's going to take them back out of the land and going to bring drastic consequences. And God speaking to Ezekiel says, I have looked for an intercessor and have not found one. He so wants to limit his judgment, but there's no one even to intercede. Israel has gone so much the way of idolatry that no one's even praying for them anymore because they've, they're wholly and fully given over to it. Now here, as we're learning about Aaron, we're also, whether you know it or not, learning about Jesus. Because as we were reading in the book of Hebrews, the point that it was trying to make is in the same way that Aaron was chosen to be the one who prayed for the people, to be the one who sacrificed for the people, so also God has selected Jesus. And that's why it says in the New Testament that now Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us, constantly standing in the gap between our failures and the judgment we deserve. And so we see that pictured profoundly and vividly here in the story Verse 49, now those who died in the plague were 14,700 besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. Now, anytime we look at these things, it can seem harsh. It can seem over the top. And you have to remember that this is on the heels of regular and consistent expression of rebellion and stubbornness and grumbling In fact, I would encourage you again to read Psalm 78, which does a really good job of contrasting the goodness of God's leadership, his grace, and his patience with the constant rebellion of Israel. But let's move on to chapter 17. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and get from them staves, one for each father's house, from all their chiefs, according to their father's houses, twelve staves. Write each man's name on the staff, and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi, for there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Okay, and so now God gives them an opportunity to see tangibly, visibly, miraculously even, that he's chosen Levi, and specifically Aaron as high priest. He wants to put this misunderstanding to rest. And so every household leader, one for each tribe of Israel, takes their staff and brings it to the tabernacle. Every one of them writes their name on their staff. Okay, then verse 4. You shall deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you, and the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make uh, to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. Okay, so he wants to put this to rest. All 12 of these staffs, these are walking sticks, right? This isn't a branch. It's not a potted plant. It's a dead piece of wood. And he says, but you'll know the, fa- the family, the tribe, the priest I've cho- chosen because that one will sprout. It will grow life, even though it's just a dead piece of wood. And so verse 6 Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and all their chiefs gave him staffs, one for each chief according to their father houses, 12 staffs, one for each tribe then. Uh, Side note, the word for tribe and the word for staff in the Hebrew is the same. So this is actually a really uh, appropriate 
picture language uh, thing here. Verse 7, And Moses deposited the staffs before the Lord on the tent of the testimony. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Okay, so these are not the beginnings of growth. This is an entire season of fruitfulness. Okay, leaves and then flowers and then fruit all the way through. Verse 9, then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumblings. And so God miraculously demonstrates his choice of Aaron here by taking a dead piece of wood and making it alive again, uniquely of the other twelve. So I'll do this against their grumblings, lest they die. Verse 11, thus Moses did as the Lord commanded him, so he did. And the people of Israel said to Moses, behold, we perish, we're undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? Okay. Basically, fear is running rampant now, and they go, look, it is not even safe for us to go to the tabernacle anymore. It's just too dangerous. Now, side note, what was supposed to protect the Israelites from the danger of the tabernacle? What is the lightning rod for God's holiness? The Levites, right? The same ones who led this rebellion live around the tabernacle like a donut, keeping the people at a distance, and their job is to protect the people from the tabernacle and the tabernacle from the people. Now they understand, okay, the design And so, chapter 18, verse 1, so the Lord said to Aaron. Now, that is incredibly unique, and it's once again significant. It's an affirmation of Aaron's role. Usually, it's the Lord said to Moses, but here it's the Lord says to Aaron. Once again, God confirms his choosing of Aaron in a unique way. So the Lord says to Aaron, quote, you and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary, and you and your sons shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. And with you, uh, with you bring your brothers also the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may join you and minister to you while you and your sons are before uh, the tent of the testimony. They shall keep guard over you and over the whole tent, but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary or to the altar, lest they and you die. So the roles here are, are confirmed. The priests are to minister in the tabernacle. They're the only ones allowed inside the holy place. The Levites are to help them inside the tabernacle, but mostly they're to preserve the outside Uh, And then it continues here. It says in verse 5, You shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath over the people of Israel. And behold, I've taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They're a gift to you and given to the Lord to do the service of the tent of meeting. And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar that is within the veil. And you shall serve. I give you the priesthood as a gift. And any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, Behold, I've given you a charge of the contributions made to me, all of the consecrated things of the people of Israel. So the first thing is these roles are reinstated, and because they operate as a lightning rod to God's holiness, 
there's also a contribution Israel makes towards their well-being. Okay? As we've stated before, both the priesthood and the Levites serve on behalf of all Israel. They're not separate. They're not doing their own thing. They're there for the sake of Israel. And Israel has just had a, a very hands-on lesson on this reality, right? That Aaron is on their side and for their safety. And so after these things are restated, then we get an explanation of the contributions that Israel will make to sustain both the priesthood and the Levites. Okay? In other words, we're going to talk about the tithe. So verse 8, the Lord spoke to Aaron, behold, I've given you charge of the contributions made to me. All the consecrated things of the people of Israel I've given to them, to you as a portion and to your sons as a perpetual due. This shall be yours of the most holy things reserved from the fire. Every offering of theirs, every grain offering of theirs, and every sin offering of theirs, every guilt offering of theirs which they render to me shall be most holy to you and your sons. Okay, so anything that's not burned on the altar of those offerings, notice the burnt offering isn't listed. Why? Because the burnt offering is wholly consumed on the altar. The fellowship offering isn't listed. Why? Because that one is shared equally with the offerer. But these ones, uh, a portion is offered on the altar. The rest of it goes to sustain the priests. Verse 10, in a most holy place you shall eat it. Every male may eat it, it's holy to you. This is also yours, the contribution of their gift. All the wave offerings of the people of Israel, I've given them to you and your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual due. Everyone who's clean in your house may eat it. All the best oil and the best of the wine and the grain, the first fruits of what they give to the Lord, I give to you. And so all of these first fruit offerings were to be sustaining and enjoyed by the high priest and the priests who minister in the temple and their families. Verse 13, the first ripe fruits of all that's in the land, which they bring to the Lord, shall be yours. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. And their redemption price at a month old you shall redeem them. You shall fix at five shekels in silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 geras. And so if there's an animal that's the first one had by a particular animal, then it's brought and offered. If it's a child, then the child isn't offered. They pay five shekels to redeem the child. And so what we see here is that the gift that's given to the Levites is diverse. Some of it is already prepared food, some of it is grain for them, some of it is livestock, some of it is money, Um, but the principle is basically one of first fruits here, okay? And so, verse 17, but the firstborn of a cow, or the firstborn of a sheep, or the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem, they are holy, you shall sprinkle their blood on the altar and burn their fat as as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, but their flesh shall be yours. And the breast that is waved and the right thigh are yours. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord I give to you and your sons and your daughters with you as a perpetual due. It's a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and your offspring with you. Salt and covenant in the, uh, in the Hebrew Bible go hand in hand. We're not necessarily sure we know why. Okay? But we do have ancient writings from non-Jewish sources that recognize... Um, Uh, tribes being, in our lingo today, worth their salt. And so most likely here, however the salt was used in a covenant, it was used as a sign of faithfulness, of keeping the covenant. 
And so God is saying this will be your perpetual due. It's the salt of the covenant. It's, it's how they will keep the covenant. Verse 20, And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance of the land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Okay? And so they're not to go off and do their own things. They're not to have their own career. They're not working their own portion of the land. They're not even given a section like the other 11 and a half tribes. Um, instead, they're, as we'll see, given refugee cities all over the place so that they're available to Israel to teach them the law. Um, but for the most part, they live off of the provisions that Israel provides them. So that's the priest and his family, um, the line of Aaron. But notice the Levites also, verse 21. To the Levites I've given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for the service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting lest they bear their sin and die. Okay, and so the word for tithe just means a tenth. So all of Israel was responsible to offer a general tenth of all that they had, and that goes to the Levites. So apart from the things we just learned about, the first fruits, the sacrifices, the things that take place in the tabernacle itself, there's a tithe that Israel gives of 10%, and that's for the livelihood of the Levites. Okay? Um, and so it says, uh, verse 23, the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. Among the people of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I've given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I've said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Moreover, you shall speak and say to the Levites, when you take from the people of Israel the tithe that I've given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it uh, to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. Okay? And so when the Levites receive that 10%, they take 10 of that 10 and they bring it to the temple and offer it to the Lord. Okay? The Levites aren't free of worshiping God. Now, as we'll see, that's going to go to Aaron and the priesthood. It's one more portion for them. But I do find this principle to be significant for me. I think there are similarities between the Levites and even to some degree the priesthood and the modern-day role of pastor. At the same time, I can say clearly and distinctly there's a reason why the New Testament never uses the word priest of pastor. Okay? It's because we have one high priest one mediator, one intercessor. It's because what Jesus did was so significant, we no longer need a priesthood like we no longer need a sacrifice or a tabernacle. Okay, But there are similarities and comparisons. And one of the things that this verse says to me as a pastor is that just because I'm doing the work of ministry doesn't write off me needing to worship God even with my paycheck. And so I tithe and give my offerings to the Lord, even though my paycheck comes from other people's tithes, okay? And this is part of the place that I draw that principle from, as much as our tax guy doesn't like it, because it looks a lot like money laundering. I mean, if you want to think about that 10% is just on constant cycle through the church all the time. But the reason that it's reiterated here is that they are to worship the Lord, okay? And so that cycle is maintained in verse 27. Your contribution shall be counted to you as though it were a grain of the threshing floor as the fullness of the winepress. 
They don't have a threshing floor to thresh. They don't have a vineyard to turn into wine. So this tenth of a tenth is offered to the God as their worship. Verse 28. So you shall also present a contribution to the Lord from all your tithes, which you receive from the people of Israel. And from it you shall give the Lord's contribution to Aaron the priest. Out of all the gifts to you, you shall present every contribution due the Lord. From each, its best part is to be dedicated. And so notice where the final tithe ends up is Aaron. And obviously, it's not mentioned here that he tithes a tithe of the tithe. It's not part of the system. Okay? I think, and this is once again just my personal understanding, I think that has to do with the significance of Aaron's role as the high priest. Okay? We'll come back to that in just a second. So verse 30, therefore you shall say to them, when you have offered from the best of it, then the rest shall be counted to the Levites as the produce of the threshing floor, as the produce of the winepress, and you may eat of it in any place, you and your households, for it's your reward in return for your service in the tent of meeting. And you shall bear no sin by reason of it when you've contributed the best of it, but you shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, lest you die. Okay? And so this whole chapter of, of the Levites and their place is kind of closed here. And the last thing I want to, want to mention here um, uh, is that this tithe effectively, oh right, there we go. It's proportionate, isn't it? Okay. The wealth of Israel is reflected in the Levitical pay code, right? And so they're not making... It's not an office that can be corrupted by money. It should be equalized by the general economy of Israel. Okay. And I will just say, um, Paul maintains in the New Testament that those who minister the gospel should make their living by the gospel. Although he removed himself and said, I'm not going to take a paycheck because, Corinthians, I want you to learn a lesson he maintains that it's appropriate that a pastor should be paid, uh, that the church and those who benefit from his ministry should be uh, supportive financially of his ministry. But it is absolutely clear to me that that should be proportionate. Okay. And one of the things that I struggle with, and this is, this is something I can't always see in churches, there are, of course, the jet pastors and the mansion pastors, but ignore them for a second. For the most part, I have no idea what other pastors make or how it compares to their church income. But I do want to express concern about those of us who are called into the mission field and think that we can do that productively in a different economic level than those we're ministering to. I think it's something that we just don't always think about. And I think there's something to be recognized in even the role of ministry as we see it in the Old Testament that there's, there's an equality, there's an association between um, we don't always recognize the hindrances uh, of those things, let alone the inappropriateness of it. Anyways, it's just something I wanted to say, but I, I want to finish here. I want to walk back through Aaron and, and show you the things we've learned, all of which correspond to Jesus. Okay, And so we see here uh, that Aaron is the one who's chosen, and that choice is demonstrated in this really interesting happening, which is whose idea? Does Moses go, oh, I've got an idea. Here's what you can do, God. No, God lays out a plan. And what he does is in value, or of value because it is typological. 
When we read the New Testament a couple of times, Paul and Peter both refer to the things that happen in the Old Testament being types of those things that are to come. Sometimes they use hypodigyma, which means the uh, diagram or the, the um, schematic. That's another word that they use, the schema of things to come. Sometimes it uses the word scheme, which means the shadow of things to come. The New Testament authors read the Old Testament and go, some of these things are living prophecies, historical events, places, objects, roles, or people that are really prophetic, that are pointing forward to the future. And Aaron's role is clearly that way. Once again, read the book of Hebrews. The reason there's a high priest in the Old Testament is because we are to be expectant of the high priest. And so it's significant here that what we witness in this staff and this recognition, I have chosen Aaron as high priest, is effectively life out of death. That is the evidence. A dead branch from an almond tree that has now just been filled with life to the abundance of fruit. That's why in the New Testament, Paul points to the ministry of Jesus and says God has demonstrated his choice of Jesus as Messiah by raising him from the dead. And like I said, Aaron here is the one who stands in the gap, and that is Jesus' present tense role. He's ascended to the right hand of God and ever lives to make intercession. And so here we have not only stories um, of the things that lurk in our heart that we don't always realize are there. Like we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 last week, these things were written as examples so that we don't make the same mistakes. We have something better than tassels. We have the long-form history of how people have responded to the living of God. And so as Paul puts it, let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Don't think, boy, I'm so glad I'm not like those stupid Israelites. You are. That's why they needed the tassels, and that's why we need the book of Numbers. But more than that, this book doesn't just tell us about us. It tell us, tells us about God's ultimate and final plan. And we'll see more of that next week and the following week. The book of Numbers is a major place for the New Testament to say, you want to know what Jesus did? Let's talk about Numbers. Let's talk about that weird occasion where where a bronze serpent is raised in the wilderness. That's the one that Jesus says, you want to know what I'm about to do on a cross? You remember what happened in the book of Numbers? We see the same thing here with the priesthood. And so it's helpful for us to read this ancient book about these people who are awaiting the promised land because in it God is starting to lay the groundwork of the bigger exodus, of the greater plan of salvation that he has. Um, of a people who unfortunately are just as stubborn and just as foolish and head-hearted, uh, hard-headed. Um, but, but we have a high priest who doesn't need to offer sacrifices on his own behalf. And although he's familiar with our weakness because he was tempted in all ways, he is yet without sin. And so he can be both high priest and sacrifice. And if we want to up the ante and temple as well. And so the New Testament good news is very good news. Let's pray. Father, I know we always need a healthy dose of the seriousness of sin and the, the almost inexpressible reality of your holiness. But I thank you, Lord, that it's mingled with constant expressions of your patience, 
demonstrations of your grace and time-tested realities of your faithfulness. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be like the Israelites, uh, but that we would orient ourselves to the one who's greater than Aaron and the one who's greater than the tabernacle and the one who's greater than Solomon, the one who you promised and sent to fully pay for us, to set us right, to bring us into relationship with you. I just ask God that you would work those, that reality of your love, that demonstration of your goodness so deep in our hearts, Lord, um, that, that the rebellion that still rests, that's still lodged in the crevices and in the dark shadowy places of our heart uh, would just flee, would be melt away, would be removed entirely so that we could worship you in the way that you are fully worthy of. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.